Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. State and tribal officials have a ways to go before they can fully assess the fallout from a complex multi-year fraud involving Medicaid reimbursements. Right now, more than 100 treatment facilities are shut down or suspended while authorities investigate the extent of the scheme that snared hundreds of Native residents. And there's now confusion for many people seeking legitimate services. We'll get a rundown of the latest coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The remains of five Native children who died at an Indian boarding school more than a century ago will finally be returned to their living relatives. The Mountain West News Bureau's Will Walkie reports. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania was a symbol of the notorious boarding school era. Thousands of Native children were taken from their families, sometimes at six years old, and forced to assimilate into white culture. Gwen Carr is a member of the Cayuga Nation of New York and is executive director of the Carlisle Indian School Project. She says conditions at the school were harsh. Basically, they tried to empty out all of the Indian in you. You know, cutting your hair, taking your clothes, and, you know, being beaten a lot of times or punished with corporal punishment uh, when you were caught speaking your language, etc. Now the U.S. is reckoning with that history. This will be the sixth disinternment at Carlisle since 2017, where the military transfers remains to relatives for reburial. Cemetery officials say 28 children have been returned so far. Carr says these efforts are a critical part of healing for tribal members often suffering from generational trauma. Their spirit is still wandering around lost, and they need to go home where the earth recognizes them and where they can truly be laid to rest in the land that birthed them with the people, family, and tribes that they came from. The students will be moved this September, and they died between 1879 and 1910. One named Bo Neal is from the northern Arapaho tribe of Wyoming. Others are from the Blackfeet Nation of Montana, the Puyallup tribe of Washington State, the Spirit Lake tribe of North Dakota, and the Sisseton Wapaton Oyate tribe of South Dakota. Officials are also working to recognize the troubled legacy of the boarding school era through the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. For National Native News, I'm Will Walkie in Laramie, Wyoming. Three Lakota water protectors are in Ireland this week as part of a series of solidarity events. Show McPollin has more from Dublin. Irish musicians and water activists on both sides of the border in counties Leitrim and Tyrone hosted the group of Standing Rock protest veterans from South Dakota. Several local communities here faced increased mining and fracking activity. Fracking is banned in the 26 counties of the Irish Republic, but allowed in the six counties still controlled by the British government. Scientists point out that pollution from mining and fracking is undeterred by Ireland's 100-year-old political borders. One of the water protectors, Lewis Grassrow from the Lower Burrell Sioux Tribal Council, found a lot in common with his Irish counterparts during the event in Tyrone. Since being here, uh, you're not so much different from us. You're very similar. To hear your speeches, to hear the very same words, the same words I've heard from Standing Rock. 
Activists are now fighting back against the extraction projects and using lessons from the campaigns against North American pipeline projects. Grassrope encouraged them not to give up, even if it feels like they are losing. It's not about if we win or lose. It's about the gathering. It's about the love. It's about what we create together. We will always keep standing because in the end, we think of giants as corporations, but they just, they just awoken a sleeping giant. For National Native News, I'm Show McPullen in Dublin. National Indigenous History Month kicks off June 1st in Canada. It's an opportunity for people to learn about the cultures, traditions, and experiences of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. Events are planned across the country throughout the month. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The state of Arizona is cracking down on an alleged Medicaid fraud that has targeted Native Americans. Over 100 allegedly fraudulent facilities are under investigation in Arizona. Authorities say some of the facilities build for drug and alcohol rehabilitation, treatment, and mental health services that were never provided. Governor Katie Hobbs says the scheme defrauded the state's Medicare program of hundreds of millions of dollars. Workers reportedly picked up vulnerable Native residents with the promise of housing and treatment. Tribal members who were once reported missing were found at the facilities. Today on our show, we'll get insights on this alleged scam, and we want to hear what you think about it. Do you or a relative have any experience dealing with a shady treatment facility? Join our conversation with comments or questions by calling 1-800-996-2848. From Window Rock, Arizona, we're joined by Ethel Branch. She is the Attorney General for the Navajo Nation, and she is Dene. Ethel, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. It's great to be back here. You bet, Ethel. Our other four guests are all joining us from Phoenix, Arizona. Darren Thompson is a reporter with Native News Online, and he is Lac de Flambeau, Ojibwe, and Tahana Otham. Darren, welcome back to you as well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Glad to be here. Elizabeth Bryant is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Reva Stewart is a grassroots advocate with the Stolen People, Stolen Benefits campaign. She is Danae. Welcome, Reva. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And Colleen Chatter is also a grassroots advocate with the Stolen People, Stolen Benefits campaign. She is Danae as well. Colleen, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
Darren, I'd like to begin with you today by asking just what is going on in Arizona? These alleged crimes, they seem almost too bizarre to be true. Human trafficking, insurance fraud, vulnerable Native American people victimized yet again. It's like a bad nightmare. How can such a large-scale criminal activity occur and for what appears to have been quite some time? Yes, I would say that synopsis is generally the approach to inquiring about this large, widespread insurance scheme that targets federally members of federally recognized tribes. So it is not just people from Arizona's tribal communities who are affected and or targeted. It actually involves bringing in people from other states like New Mexico, like North and South Dakota, Montana, Wisconsin, who come here and who are influenced by quote-unquote bad actors. These bad actors are usually either business owners or decision makers for licensed and approved either residential treatment facilities or outpatient treatment centers. Um, There's some differentiation in the way that those two terms are defined, and they change on occasion. And as a result of that, it just seems very difficult to navigate through one your uh, healthcare plan. But what happens is people are encouraged to claim that they are homeless to come down here to be quote unquote uh, roomed and board boarded while they receive uh, what is considered uh, a treatment model. The treatment models, uh, there's no standards for them. Uh, what I mean by that is there's very loose standards in what is considered uh, an actual approved class. Now on the back end, when the state audits the actual activity and service provided, then that might raise a flag and be like, what are you providing to such and such patient? And another thing is that this is healthcare and healthcare is personal. And each person is essentially uh, up, they, they have the sovereignty to, to make that decision of whether or not they want to seek healthcare and whether or not to inform a person or not about whether or not they are receiving healthcare or where they are receiving healthcare. And one of the, ra- one of the reasons um, you know, this continues is that, they're, again, the bad actors uh, who are looking for an opportunity to capitalize on the very, what was formerly high rate per day per client. And so what was happening is people would get these approved homes and they would fill beds in these homes uh, beyond dwelling codes and then treat, mistreat them while they're in their care, as in, if you don't like this, you can go back out on the street. It's up to you to accept this or not. And there's no formal policy. There's no formal procedure. Of course, you can go on the Internet, mm-hmm. right? But if you're being picked up off the street, you're struggling with things like addiction. Odds are you're struggling with other things in your life, like a job, keeping a job, keeping a family, having family support. So odds of you not having a phone are likely pretty high. And so as a result of that, people are left, uh, vulnerable people are left even more vulnerable and they're looking for other places to go. And there's a whole system that exists, not only in the Phoenix, Arizona area, but throughout the state of Arizona. Uh, What has been announced a couple of weeks ago by Arizona officials is that there are 100 behavioral health centers or organizations that are currently under investigation during and and also being suspended from future payments 
uh, that number is going to go a lot higher, um, particularly because the state announced that they're hiring a third-party investigator to conduct and, and audit all people who are claiming access to reimbursement. So it's not just behavioral health anymore. Um, it's other components. And so the odds of that being higher is pretty significant. Um, okay. It's a very predominant practice because... Um, I've heard various business owners who I have known myself who basically say, well, they don't know. They, as in the clients, the clients being those enlisted in the state's American Indian Health Program, which is pretty um, substantial when compared to other health programs that are similar in other states. So what's happening is people want their care and they want it right now, and they don't realize that uh, there has to be some bigger education uh, patient education, of course, of, of how to seek health care, uh, okay. what to be weary of. Okay. Darren, um, I, I'm sorry. This, thank you so much for, for kicking us off here. And uh, these alleged crimes are, are just beyond shocking. It really is just beyond the pale of, of what's been uh, alleged so far, it really is. And I, I want to bring Ethel in, into the conversation now and get her take as well. And Ethel, please tell us, how has the Navajo Nation been affected by these alleged crimes? Oh, gosh. The effect has been, um, I guess, far-reaching. Um, I mean, as you know, we have um, a significant issue of MMIR, missing and murdered um, relatives here at Navajo Nation. And one of the things that I've been looking at just in response to this issue is going back and looking at the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report that was issued a few years ago. And what struck me about that report was some of the most cases were coming out of like Gallup, New Mexico. And this was comparing it across the nation and, um, you know, Tucson and Salt Lake, Albuquerque cities where there are large Navajo populations. Um, so, and what we've discovered in the course of, of our field work, our investigation here um, is, that we're finding some of these missing relatives in these homes. So far, we've found four. Um, and so we, we, that's what I'm saying. Like, we don't know how far back this goes um, or how extensive right now. And since our ground teams have been active, just kind of combing the city, going to places in, in uh, the Phoenix area where we expect displaced relatives to be. We have two teams led by Navajo PD, and then a team led by Navajo Department of Transportation. They're just talking to everybody that they see, providing information. So far, in the first week, for our PD's two teams, they encountered 162 displaced relatives, whether they were Navajo or Indigenous. 125 of those were Navajo. 37 were from other tribes. About 77% of the folks um, that our, our PD teams encountered were Navajo. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's quite tremendous. We don't know how many of those at the end of the day. We, we run all those names through our missing uh, persons database. And um, so far, you know, again, having found four. So we don't know the scope of this. What we do know is the estimated population impact is going to be about five to 7,000 people. Um, and, and, you know, if we're seeing 77%, we're expecting, uh, you know, 77, even as high as 90% of that five to 7,000 who will be Navajo. But we don't know that, they're, that all of those people are actual people um, at this time, right? We don't know 
how many of those are ghost billing individuals, like people that these companies have personally identifying information for and they're just billing for. Um, and then we also don't know how many of those individuals have passed but are continuing to be billed for services on. Um, so it, it's we don't fully know the scope of impact and we're at this point trying to collect as much data as we can to, to better understand that impact. What we're, we've been told is that this operation has been in place in the state of Arizona since about 2019. Uh, so at least we have sort of like a time bound. Um, but um, yeah, we, our, our team, we're trying to aggregate all this data, learn as much as we can as folks come in, learn as much as we can from them about the situations that they're in. Uh, a lot of people, we, we are trying to sort of fit into the state's response system, the 211 option seven system and just be there as an extra layer of support to make sure that nobody falls through any gaps in this overall response. Um, so we, we don't talk to everybody that goes into the system. You know, Navajos who tap into the 211 system are given the option of having their information provided to the nation. Um, the ones who are part of our tribal REBA system, uh, rehabilitation health, I, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> what okay. REBA stands for, but okay. it's the mental health services. Um, for our tribe, but okay. yeah, we're, we're, Ethel, we're trying to understand that. Absolutely, and Ethel, we are going to have to take a break, but it, it sounds like this is just going to be a daunting task to go through all these numbers. Like you said, it's just going to be really hard to, to link all of these names with actual people. So, uh, wow, just uh, the enormity uh, of what's been alleged is, is just really, really staggering. Folks, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with a lot more details. You might know of Australian bands like Men at Work and Midnight Oil. At the same time those bands were getting global airplay, a number of Aboriginal bands were also getting noticed. We'll look back at some of the influential Aboriginal bands of the 80s on the next Native America Calling. Yate. You look after everyone else. Look after yourself too. Check out these healthcare resources for Native women at all stages of life. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash women's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Ahiahat. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the massive case of alleged insurance fraud that has targeted Native Americans in Arizona. If you have a comment or question for our conversation today, you can join us at 1-800-996-2848. That number again is 1-800-996-2848. You can also post on any of our social media pages. Right now, we've got Ethel Branch on the line. She's the Attorney General for the Navajo Nation. And Ethel, we heard earlier from Darren Thompson that uh, there's been over 100, 100 uh, fraudulent facilities that have allegedly been identified. And he says that number could very likely go up. So I just got to ask, I mean, what do we know about these facilities, these businesses that have orchestrated this alleged massive fraud? I mean, how, who are these people? What are they doing? Yeah, well, actually, 
the hundred that were suspended on May 15th, 102, that was in addition to another hundred um, that had been suspended since 2019. Um, but so the hundreds that were suspended recently, that's, that's a big portion, I think of it, but um, you know, it's, what we're seeing and what we're hearing in the field and we people have been really great about reporting things on our operation rainbow bridge social media but they're seeing movement of people like as a facility is suspended instead of people being displaced like we would expect them to be they're actually being moved to a different facility um, so what that leads me to wonder about is, well, maybe there's a principal that maybe has some subsidiaries. And so as one subsidiary suspended, then people get moved to one that's not suspended. Um, so we don't, we don't really know what that corporate infrastructure looks like behind all of these facilities. Um, so that's something that, that we're trying to learn more about as we go. The other possibility is that these patients are being brokered to a different provider um, and there may be a, a transaction associated with that. So um, it's, it's really, um, you know, quite, quite extensive in terms of this network, but apparently this is something that had been happening in Nevada um, and it kind of made its way into Arizona um, about 2019. The, um, the fee-for-pay industry uh, in Arizona, we've been told, was about, you know, $51 million per year, and then it ballooned to $668 million in 2022. So that's kind of like that's how huge the scope of this is, uh, the potential scope of it. So, yeah, we we really don't know exactly how many of these operators are fraudulent at this point. And I totally agree um, with Darren that there will be more of these. There will be okay. more probably in the next three to six months. Ethel, it also, it also sounds like some of these um, bad actors could still be in operation and there could still be native people that they are, are basically holding captive. We don't necessarily know that everybody's been, been released yet, do we? No, we don't. So it, and it's a very complex infrastructure. There's the providers that are getting the money from access for delivering the services. Some of them are residential. Some of them are outpatient. And so for the outpatient ones, um, you know, the, the housing is paid through them. They pay the housing for the patients. Um, and so when the money stops flowing to them, then they won't be able to pay the housing. So, you know, from what we've seen so far, if rent was paid on a house or a number of houses through the end of May, we might start feeling the impacts of that in June. Um, and so we might see, I'm thinking after June 1, we might see a wave of additional displacement for the homes where rent was not paid. Um, but, you know, it might take even longer. It could take a while for evictions to happen. So it could be a very slow and painful process of displacement in the best of scenarios, you know, in the best, mm -hmm. assuming that our people are actually displaced and they're not moved to a different facility and kind of kept within the system. Um, so yeah, it's, um, and there's, you know, there's always the possibility that these entities reincorporate and they create a new um, business to do the same thing. Right. Or so just go to another that, state. 
Well, actually, what we've been told is that this is unique to Arizona. They're a fee-for-pay service for Native Americans. Um, so it, although I am starting to hear that there may be similar problems in a few other states as well. but And I think okay. that's why you're seeing like the recruitment of Native people from all over the country to bring them here to Arizona where, you know, the, these – this was unregulated for so long, and there was the opportunity to to do this type of bad behavior. Got it. Got it. Thank you, Elizabeth. Or excuse me, Ethel, for, for those insights. Really appreciate that. Ethel Branch, again, Attorney General for Navajo Nation. And anyone listening today, if this is shocking to you, if you're just uh, flabbergasted at what you're hearing, give us a call. Tell us about it. Tell us how you feel. If you're ticked off about it, we want to know. one 800 996 Again, 1-800-996-2848. Let's now bring Elizabeth Bryant into our conversation. She is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Uh, Elizabeth, you have firsthand experience dealing with some of these bad actors. When did you first realize something was wrong in your work? Okay, yes. Um, Thank you for adding me to the conversation. Um, Yeah, I actually, so um, I've been a nurse for 17 years now. I've been a nurse practitioner since 2020. actually got my... um, my degree and my final license in February, right before COVID hit. So March, you know, COVID hit everyone. So I actually took my first job in March of 2020 and it was just an outpatient treatment center. Um, I, you know, seeing patients that were coming in from, the majority of the patients were coming in from behavioral health residential facilities at that time. Um, And so I did start to see like a large influx of Native American clients at that time. Um, so that was kind of like, okay, you know, this, I I didn't really think much of it at first. I'm just, I'm busy seeing patients. Um, what did come to my attention though, from one of my medical assistants was like, Hey, Les, she said, she came to me. She's like, I know I'm probably going to lose my job for this, but I, you know, I, I, I know that you don't know what's going on and I really need you to know this, but the management team had came to her and asked her to copy and paste my credentials, my signature block, which is at the top of my evaluations for um, psychiatric evaluations, which would in turn, it's so the process for getting approval to get into any of these kind of facilities, whether it be outpatient or behavioral health residential, is to first be a psychiatric mental health provider. And, and it's our responsibility to screen the patient and find out first what kind of level of appropriate care are they um, needing um, do they, you know, do they meet the criteria for substance abuse treatment? And, you know, just really to document all their mental health needs um, and prescribe medications. So um, the, the, the medical assistant told me they were asking her to copy and paste my signature block on evaluations that I did not perform. So I did not see the patients. And she said, I know this is not right. I directly went to the management team and said, hey, so this is fraud. Um, this is not allowed to do this. Um, I had also previously to that incident, that was like kind of the final straw, like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm put, I'm resigning. I cannot okay. abandon my patients, so I'm going to give you two weeks notice. However, they just let me go immediately, cut me off of the EHR because they knew I was onto them and, and could potentially like have evidence against them. Um, so in, previous to that, I had actually been told by these behavioral health um homes there was a couple homes that they had like text me like hey so your boss told me that you're supposed to change the date on this evaluation that you did to reflect an earlier date 
which would mean that so the date of the evaluation sets the the timeline for when the billing can actually start to occur. Uh, okay. So if they they were like asking me, hey, we need you to put two weeks prior on your evaluation date so that we can actually, you know, because the patient was actually in the home, whatever, receiving care. And so I said in my text message back to them, that is absolutely not going to happen. It's illegal. That's fraud. And so um, a few months later after I had quit, sorry, kind of long story, but um, a few months later after I had actually um, quit that company, they, um, the detective at the attorney general's office for the state of Arizona called me and said, hey, Ms. Bryant, you know, um, we have reason to believe you might have some information for us. I said, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll come down there and talk to you, you know, next week, okay? And they're like, no, we need you to come now, ma'am. <laughs> so I was like, oh, crap, okay. So I did go down to the attorney general's office in downtown Phoenix. I was there answering questions for approximately four hours where I did disclose all of the, everything that I had been observing and seeing and, you know, the, the, the things that had been told to me. Um, I did actually provide them my cell phone because I still did have those text messages showing, um, you know, the request and everything that was being made by my employer. And so that they said, you know, thank you, cooperated. This is really important information. Um, later, though, so just, you know, I don't want to name drop, but those, uh, that facility and their subsidiaries, as Ethel Branch was talking about, they had multiple, it was a web. They had like a main kind of like the owners and they had multiple facilities underneath them that were, you know, so they would shift from one place to another. So um, those are all, there's like about five of them on the list that I'm very familiar with as far as from that employer. Yep. So they were having, they wanted those dates changed so they could have a longer period to bill and make more money then obviously. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And then uh, again, we've heard stories about, people driving through urban areas like in Phoenix and white vans and encouraging native people to jump in. Hey, we'll take you to a treatment center. We'll get you taken care of. Did you hear stories like that? I absolutely did. So, you know, the clients, I always kind of, the clients are like the best informants of what's going on. So I would just ask them, so, Hey, how did you hear about this treatment center? How did you get referred? Um, So after, after I left that company, I actually went into work for myself. So I became an independent contractor. So I worked for uh, somewhere around 10 different facilities at different varying times when they would call me up, hey, we need a contracted provider to come and do psychiatric med management. I would go into facilities and see the patients that were arriving. I had patients telling me, yeah, I'm I'm from the Navajo Nation. And um, one example that kind of really sticks out to me is an, an elder gentleman. And I was like, hey, sir, you know, like, what led you to come to treatment? You know, like, uh, how can we help you? And he's like, actually, they, they told me they were going to get me housing supplies to fix my roof. And I said, oh, okay, did you have a substance abuse problem, sir, or drinking too much? He's like, no, I don't even drink alcohol. I just need to fix my roof. Oh, my <laughs> so gosh. I said, sir, okay, so let me, let me call the owner right now. And I called the owner. I said, where did you get this guy? where did you get, you know, this is what's the situation. And she's like, Oh, this guy, you know, that, that kind of gives referrals. Um, he, he brought him to me. And so I said, please tell me you're not like paying for patients. Please tell me you're not doing that. Oh, I didn't know that was illegal. <laughs> so uh. there were multiple instances that I was told and made aware of that were like, you know, they said, okay, yeah, it's a referral fee or something, 500 to a thousand dollars per person. And so I told the owner, I said, okay, this man 
He doesn't even have a cell phone. He's an elder gentleman. He has no way to contact his family to even let them know he is here. You need to take him back, like, immediately. You literally kidnapped him. Okay. You okay. literally kidnapped him. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now, at this point, we do want to clarify that at this point, all of this is alleged, right? There have been no convictions or anything like that, so we can't, you know— we can't say that these are crimes or this is actually fraud or, or, or true scams at this point. Just at this point, these this is all alleged. But I do want to ask you, Elizabeth, because the next question here is, okay, what about patients right now that need treatment, that need care, Native people that actually that need to go to a treatment center? They might need rehabilitation, but all these places are, are getting shut down left and right, and there's all of this confusion. What happens to folks who are in need right now today? Um, I think that's a that's a really good question, and um, I think that um, there are legitimate facilities out there that really do care about the people. Um, there are programs that actually really are in this for the right reason. Um, the the only problem is now our you know our budget has been drastically cut, drastically cut, and so um, that is having an impact on on the not only the bad actors but the good actors as well. The facilities that that now our budget is cut, so um, you know, providing those services is is a challenge. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't have all the answers at this point. Kind of okay. looking at some alternative ways that maybe that um, that these like housing and things can be funded, or maybe even just direct referrals and co- collaboration with the tribes themselves. Like, I really believe the tribes, um, you know, should be like at the forefront of knowing where their people are going, vetting the programs that are out there already that are, you know, in good standing and making sure that the people are getting the treatment that they need. Okay. So have tribes more involved. And I want to go back to, to Ethel again and Ethel, you know, in addition, because Elizabeth mentions, you know, having tribal involvement, having tribes more aware of, of where their people are, but also Elizabeth, if you could just speak to just the overall, network here, you know, this billing and this, the infrastructure that was able to be, the healthcare infrastructure that has been just so dramatically exploited, uh, allegedly, in these alleged incidents here. I mean, what's it going to take to fix that? So these, these major, major gaps or loopholes, whatever it is that these people have allegedly been able to, to work around and orchestrate, they can't keep doing that in the future. Absolutely. I agree a thousand percent um i mean i think i I don't really know (laughs) what folks were thinking when they were developing the regulatory framework and the oversight for this type of work and you know this is this is just one area of um someone mentioned this is healthcare. it's very intimate um it's like a direct interface with a human being um, and so there has to be special care taken in terms of ensuring quality delivery of services, actual delivery of services. And there's also, you know, that imbalance of power between a patient and the provider um, and deference by the, by the patient to the provider as well. So, you know, I, I think that's something where we're going to have to roll up our sleeves along with access and, and the regulators and, well, number one, challenge them to step up and actually regulate uh, and provide the kind of oversight that is needed to ensure quality delivery of services um, and, and ensure that they are funding those service providers that are providing the quality service adequately. And just from the Navajo Nation perspective, we're kind of at that point where we feel like we want to be delivering the services ourselves 
And we also want to be housing the patients ourselves because then we will know that our people are being properly serviced. And in terms of their housing, they'll be in a safe, free environment where they can come and go as they choose, um, at least more so than they are with, with these other facilities where, you know, it, it, it really does seem like once people get into that system, like on social media, we are having people saying, I want to leave, but I can't, and I don't have a phone. And so they're connecting with us on Facebook Messenger. Um, and so, you know, we're able to send folks out to do a safety check. And But you know, we don't know the full extent of, of individuals who are in that situation are not able to reach out to us to ask for help. Um, but absolutely. And, and the other thing is we're just dealing with this context of behavioral health and rehabilitation services. What about other services like for um, special needs children or, you know, children that right, have been right. taken. This could just camp? be the tip of the iceberg. Ethel, I'm sorry. We got to take another break. Uh, over 100 allegedly fraudulent facilities under investigation. We'll be right back. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. Still time to join our conversation about alleged Medicaid fraud by sober living facilities in Arizona. The number to call is 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Phone lines are open, folks. Also, you can always listen to today's show as a podcast. The show is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our next guests, Reva Stewart and Colleen Chatter. They're both grassroots advocates with Stolen People, Stolen Benefits campaign. And Reva, I want to begin with you. I know you and Colleen have been helping people stranded at some of these closed facilities. What are they telling you about what happened? Uh, good morning. We um, initially started about a year ago when I first um, started observing um, at that time were white vans. They were stopping because I'm catty corner to the Phoenix Indian Hospital. So I would see these vans stopping at the bus stops. And when something doesn't look right, I mean, they were consistently stopping, stopping, stopping. So I did. I went out and asked, and I asked um, a gentleman, I said, can I ask you what? that van asked you, you know, why did they stop? And he was like, they asked me if I needed a place, you know, if I needed a place to stay or if I needed some help. And, and I said, what was your answer? And he said, I just told him I live up the street. I just came here for an appointment. So I wasn't able to place it then. I was just curious as to what was going on. And it wasn't until I'd say like roughly the end of September when, um, I got a call from my family in um, New Mexico um, telling me to keep an eye out for my, um, my cousin. And again, I didn't put two and two together until we actually found her and she told me what had happened and how it happened. 
And that's when I was like, okay, this doesn't make sense. Mm. And I was like, okay, I, I went back. I went back and I was like, okay, so these bands are going out there and you hear, you were hearing a bunch of um, stories out on the reservation about vans here and there, vans on the reservation. And once she told me what had happened in that home that she was in and how they wanted her information and she refused to give it to them, which is probably what saved her, I believe, because she, um, they just gave her a city bus ticket to get out. They told her to leave the home. Okay. So All right. She, yeah. So that's wow. how, you know, and the story she did tell me, you know, um, and I've asked her for her permission and everything. And, and I had told her, you know, had it not been for you, I would have never figured out this puzzle. I said, because now it made sense. And that's okay. when we started advocating. Colleen, I want to bring you in as well. And um, do you get a sense that, that most of these people we're talking about today have been taken involuntarily? Good good morning. Yes, I do believe they have been. You know, um, prior to my advocating, I did work with the Navajo Nation Regional Behavioral Health Authority, REBA, also known as REBA. Then I was given the opportunity to move to the Valley to do um, counseling. Then the pandemic hit. Then I went into case management, um, and which I have been doing for couple of years and what really got me going was um, the death of my sister and how um, from the very beginning she explained how she was taken down brought down who brought her down who recruited her and the living infrastructure so she we were able to get her down the first time and she came back again she was recruited um, then we lost her and um, more and more, you know, doing case management work, transport companies. I don't know how they heard that I was case managing and more and more I heard these non-emergency transport companies asking because before any client gets transported, a case manager will have to authorize um, and approve their transport. I started to see more and more, which, you know, raised a flag to me because I'm not going to do paperwork for someone that I don't know information about. Mm -hmm. So just by word of mouth, I guess, you know, people, you know, I had, I have a good rapport with my community back on the reservation and they know that I do, I was in the case management field and families started reaching out to me asking if I can help their family members get home. So that's how I started, you know, um, getting people home using money out of my own pocket, then I was able to re to, to connect with Reva. And from there it just hit off and, you know, we started to hear and see more and more about our relatives and, you know, our starting point, our main point of contact was drumbeats because everybody knows drumbeats very well. And it's just right across PIMC and that's when everything started to kick off. Okay. Colina, I, I, uh, condolences to you and your family uh, on your loss and, and really appreciate you joining us today and, and sharing this firsthand experience. Let's go to the phones now. We have Betta, who's listening in Gallup, New Mexico. 
on KGLP. Hi, Betta. Hello. Thank you for letting me come on. Um, I'm calling because where uh, I work with a program. Um, it's St. Paul's Baptist Missionary Program and uh, Four Corners um, Treatment Center. And the Four Corners Treatment Center has a, a white bus, and we use that to help disperse food and disperse clothes. And we, for a while, we had no problems. Then all of a sudden, the people that we were dispersing food to would see the white bus and they would get scared or they wouldn't come up to us at all. And then finally, um, we were able to talk to some people and they were talking about Arizona, um, people coming from Arizona, taking them. And we explained to them, we're not from Arizona. We're here in Gallup and we are here to um, help them um, just to, you know, get food or give them clothes or give them blankets when it's in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And at first I just thought it was just a coincidence, but then we began to hear more and more stories about it. And we could see there was fear in the people's heart and in their, in their faces. And um, one of the people from the residential program at Four Corners heard of people being taken advantage of and then left out in the middle of areas and wind up um, losing their lives because of the, they weren't able to give them. We didn't know what they were giving them, um, okay. but right. we knew something was wrong. Okay. And so I Better am I, so pleased. Yeah, yeah, better. Thank you. I mean, we have a, another caller we want to take, and we're kind of running low on time for the show, but I really appreciate that. And uh, here, here you are out there, your organization, trying to do the right thing and, uh, in, in a white bus, coincidentally, and uh, just isn't the best time in the world right now to be driving a white bus or a white van in the state of Arizona or, or western New Mexico, I suppose. So appreciate that insight there, Betta. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Evan, who's listening, and Hopi on KUYI. Hi, Evan. Uh, hello. Good morning. I'm at the young bus. Um, to, uh, you know, Talk about uh, one of my relatives. Um, she passed away uh, being at one of those facilities, uh, and it's very sad, you know. Um, that she was a mother, and you know her kids aren't gonna be there, and you know thinking that they were gonna give her the help she needed, she, you know, was betrayed, and we were also betrayed as our people. You know, we've been dealing with a lot alcoholism and abuse, and you know, these facilities, when they went to go retrieve some of her stuff, they wouldn't give it up and wouldn't let them inside the facility, the house. And it was a real nice suburban house and, you know, in Phoenix, somewhere down in, uh, I think it was Chandler or Chandler area or somewhere in the nice suburban house. And when they got inside, they actually saw the facility. And there was, you know, it was a home, but there was just piles of, people's clothes and trash bags and all they were given were little um, air mattress to sleep on and it was like that throughout the whole house um, oh, even through uh, the kitchen you know you would think that you know the kitchen would be used for cooking that wasn't being utilized for that that was being utilized to house more people and um, like I said they were just being um, just packing them in as many as they could fit 
right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't have their own personal space. All they had was just a little air mattress and a trash bag full of clothes. They took their information. They took made them give up their uh, food stamp cards, their, you know, uh, assistance that they were getting from, you know, the government for, you okay. know, not working and stuff. And, right. you know, that's pretty much being helped. Ransom okay. and they were allowing people to come in and still drink and party and you know not really watching them and taking that care oh, so okay evan thank you for for calling in as well and and just uh giving another layer of information to this whole story here and, and i want to go back to to reva and reva i imagine you hear stories similar to what you've heard from evan today and i also want to ask you uh, for anybody who's listening to the show today and wants to learn more about the work that you and Colleen are doing, how can they find out more? They can actually follow us on Facebook. We're um, Stolen People, Stolen Benefits. And um, the amount of stories is unbelievable. Within this last year, um, we've helped, um, I'd say, like over 50 people to get home, whether you know it's a plane ticket back up to Montana um, and the stories are horrendous because you hear of how they were basically housed. Some of them were locked from the inside, from the outside in, I'm sorry. And sometimes they're locked in the rooms. They're only allowed to go to the bathroom every two hours. Mm-hmm. So, so many of these stories were horrible and, you know, had relatives who said they had to jump the fence to get away. So um, with our um, efforts and our stolen people, stolen benefits, we um, kept it out in the media because we're like, somebody has to listen to us. We reached out to um, legislation. Um, We did the ad hoc meetings with the tribes. And this was um, about a year ago. And the only way we knew what to do was let's keep it out in the media because somebody has to listen. Somebody has to realize that this is, this is wrong, you know, and so many other people, when we decided to quit, we tried quitting like four or five times and we would cry and we were like, we need a village, you know, how are we going to keep going forward? Because it was so stressful because these stories hurt. I mean, these stories hurt of your relatives being hurt or the ones that have passed away, you know, having to hear their the families tell you their stories. It's just mm-hmm. heartbreaking. So when we asked for a village, we got a village. You know, we have a lot of people out there now that are um, on their days off. They go out and, you know, check on people, check on our relatives here in the Valley more so than before. And they'll reach out to us and we'll, you know, implement the 211 because we started a GoFundMe because we were paying out of pocket. And we started our GoFundMe to help our relatives, and we've been implementing the 211. And I know, you know, it's a brand new, um, a, a brand new program that's, you know, supposed to be in the works. But they're going to have their little um, hiccups there too. So we're going to continue to um, advocate until we know that, you know, we can actually feel safe enough to know that they're being taken care of and everybody is stepping up. And I see that. Reva, thank you. We still have a GoFundMe out there too as well. Okay. All right, Reva. Thank you so much 
for that additional information. And I want to go back to our first guest, Darren Thompson, who's a reporter with Native News Online. And Darren, we're going to have to wrap up the show in about another minute and a half. But uh, anything else that you want to add to this conversation today that our listeners need to understand? And also, do you have any additional articles planned uh, regarding this whole story? Yeah, so essentially one thing that was omitted or just wasn't discussed is who the bad actors were. Um, they range from people from overseas to even other enrolled people of tribes. So it's not just uh, outside invaders, if you will. Some of them are inside as well. So that's important to, to take into account that uh, our people know our people, and some of them have contributed to this what is considered a widespread humanitarian crisis. Uh, in the future, there is going to be an, an insider's report via Unicorn Riot um, information that really no other publication will have, and that's not a contest. It's just an exhausting, exhausting system that involves the targeting of our people. It's the same practice of targeting our people who are vulnerable and just simply are misinformed or uninformed. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. You bet, Darren. I uh, really appreciate everybody who's joined our show today, as well as our callers who've added their insights as well. And I will let you know, listeners, that we will have links on NativeAmericaCalling.com to all of the services that have been discussed today on our show. Uh, certainly a really hard-hitting topic that we've covered here on Native America Calling today and uh, I think we're going to be talking about this issue again going forward as it seems to be something that's only, uh, we're going to find out more as the weeks and the months progress. We'll get more information, and we'll keep you folks informed, all of our listeners. So we want to thank all of you for tuning in today. And again, big thanks to our guest today, Ethel Branch, Darren Thompson, Elizabeth Bryant, Reva Stewart, and Colleen Chatter for updates and insights on an alleged Medicaid fraud targeting Native Americans in the state of Arizona. Join us tomorrow as we close out the week with a conversation about Aboriginal rock music in Australia, going back to the 1980s. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One. 
the Native American Radio Network.